Hey there, I'm Tal Zlotnitsky from Ignite IT Consulting. You know me from the Braving Business Podcast, but when I'm not behind the mic, I'm helping tech startups and established companies ignite their full potential. I also help entrepreneurs and businesses in distress reset for success. With over three decades of entrepreneurial success, I bring hands-on experience to drive growth, navigate turnarounds, raise capital, and lead through innovation. Whether it's executive coaching or strategic transformation, I'm here to turn your business challenges into success stories. Visit IgniteITConsulting.com and let's spark that change together. That's IgniteITConsulting.com. Your journey to business brilliance starts now. This episode of the Braving Business Podcast is sponsored by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit, and I've been in the domestic and international logistics space for over 30 years. If you need any assistance with transportation or logistics, my team and I will jump at the chance to help. Whether it be parcel shipments, e-commerce, pallets and freight, full truckload, international air and ocean, imports, exports, warehousing and distribution, or really anything under the logistics umbrella, we got you covered. For more details, please go to shipwithpj.com. That's shipwithpj.com. Reach out to me there. Mention you found me on this podcast for a special surprise. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. A quick note of warning for this episode. The following episode contains discussion of addiction and dealing with addiction, which may be difficult for some listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling, please seek professional help and contact the helpline in your local area. Listener discretion is advised. Why, hello there. Hello there, Mr. Benoit. Are you having a hurricane on your shirt? What is that? Oh, no, this is this shirt is actually um, there's a there's a video game production company called Bungie that puts out a game called Destiny 2, which I am a huge fan of and a participant of for many, many years. And um, this shirt is for was a fundraising drive for the fires in Hawaii on Maui. So that's what, wow. that's what this shirt is. Okay. And all I got from that is you still play computer games. How old are you, my friend? I'm 55. I wish I can play them more. You still have time to play computer games. Isn't that, isn't I, that amazing? Uh, I just played some with, sure I, with all my kids did last you? night. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I, I, You know what? I used to be a huge fan of computer games, but I don't think I've played one in 20 years. Uh, Maybe shame it, on me. I've lost my youth. Up, pick it back up. Yeah. Steve, do you play video games? Hardly. No, I'm too. I'm a generation or two removed. <laughs> <laughs> He's. Are you from the generation where Atari had like the guys playing tennis and it was basically two stick figures just moving up and down? Nobody ever came to nobody ever came to the net in Atari. Right. There was always the back. You're just playing the long game. <laughs> I'm from remember that? I'm from Super Mario Brothers. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. you're not aging yourself at all when you say <laughs> right. that, my friend. <laughs> Yeah. And what so, are, uh, what, are, what are we doing yeah. for, uh, just collectively, what are we doing for Thanksgiving? Tal, you can start. What are you doing? What am I doing? Well, I am, I'm, I'm doing a very traditional Thanksgiving, which is, I'm going to have it at my ex-wife's, which I'm sure everybody oh, has so Thanksgiving with their ex-wife. Um, but you know, we are, we are actually still very good friends. I still have nothing but love and respect for her. And, uh, she was kind enough to invite me to join, uh, my children and her. 
at her home in Long Island. So I am flying to the Long Island in the morning, very early, and I'll be there for the rest of the week. So uh, tomorrow will be Tuesday, so I'll be there four days. That's amazing. And Steve, you're in Chicagoland with me, so uh, we know it's going to be cold. What are you going to be doing? So my daughter, uh, recently married, moved to um, Deerfield. So her husband is going to have myself, my wife, and uh, my younger son, whose girlfriend is in, went to, home to Virginia, and my older son, who's married with two little babies, is going to be at his in-laws. So it'll just be a small little get-together. A little pared down. Nice. Yep. Nice. Nice, nice, yep. nice. Small bird. Yeah. And actually, I just celebrated mine yesterday. So we did ours early. My kids, uh, I have a daughter who lives in Colorado. I have another daughter who lives out in LA. They came in. My son lives here. Um, we had a... a thanksgiving with my wife and that went really really well and then they're heading with their mom down to south carolina tomorrow so thanksgiving for us it's just gonna be me and the wife kicking it with the dog nice. oh. little football little football little uh little whatever the heck we want to do on a awesome. lazy thursday and friday actually so it'll be nice nice well we've got i, I hate to bust burst your bubble pj but we we actually have interviews the day before Thanksgiving and the day after Thanksgiving. I, yeah. I want to thank our production company for I, their I saw that. wonderful scheduling. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, let's Top let's notch. let's tell our guests about about our our uh, let's tell our guests. Let's tell our listeners about our wonderful guest. You mean uh Steve Werner. You mean Steve yeah, Werner, mean, the the I do. impeccable the, Steve Werner. the wonderful yeah. Steve Werner. Mm-hmm. Our, so listeners, you're gonna get a kick out of this. Our Guest today is Steve Werner, a seasoned entrepreneur and mentor with over 40 years of experience in a variety of industries. He began his career back in 1982 as a bond trader in on the bustling floor of the Chicago Board of Trade. And uh, he did that all the way until the year 2000. And in 2000, Steve made a transition into a family-owned business only to discover that it was in dire financial straits with a staggering $5 million of deficit. His investment and a, a significant portion of his life savings were on the line. So he rolled up his sleeves. He turned the business around until the credit crisis of the late 2000s eventually proved too much to overcome. Undeterred by adversity, which is why he's on this podcast, in 2009, Steve embarked on a new venture while unwinding the previous one. And over the next 12 years, he nurtured and grew the new company, eventually selling it to a private equity firm in 2021. In addition to his impressive entrepreneurial journey, Steve's story takes a deeply personal turn. In 2015, he battled addiction to antidepressants, an experience that nearly cost him his life, which we are going to dive into. This life-altering struggle ultimately led to the creation of Hour of Champions, which we'll hear more about today, and as a testament to, to both his resilience as well as his commitment to helping others overcome their own challenges. Today, Steve joins us to share his extraordinary journey of perseverance, of resilience, and reinvention. So welcome, Mr. Steve Werner, to the Braving Business Podcast. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's really an honor. Steve, thank you. And I'm, I'm uh, so glad to have you with us. And I, I enjoyed the, uh, the pre-interview and getting to know you a little bit. And um, I'm, a, I'm excited for our listeners and our viewers to hear your story because it's a it's a story of perseverance that uh, I think is kind of the essence of what our podcast is about, and uh, and it's going to give people a view into something that we we touched on uh, in some episodes, but not maybe not quite to the extent that we made today, which is uh, battling inner demons. Uh, but but I want to I want to get started 
in your early days. You were a bond trader on the Chicago Board of Trade. Um, you know, I, I I can't say I know a whole lot about uh, bond trading, but I, I've seen the movies, I've read the books, and from what I understand, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's 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 known to be a fast moving, kind of a party, hard drinking lifestyle. And I wonder whether that was your experience. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of what what you learned about business, about life from from those thirty years. Uh, trading bonds uh, on the Chicago Board of Trade. Yeah, well, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. It was a very, very fast-paced lifestyle. Um, I always say one phone call changed my life. I was actually headed into my father's construction business right after school, got a phone call from my best friend, college roommate, asked me to take a ride with him to this place called the Chicago Board of Trade. And I always say, if I go left, I'm selling aluminum siding, if I go right, I'm in financial Hollywood. And that's where I wound up. I wound up uh, taking a ride and getting introduced to um, uh, a fellow who was mentoring young men, kind of like myself, right out of school, teaching him the art of trading and took me down to the trading floor. And I saw controlled chaos, just 600 people jumping up and down, yelling and screaming. And I I had no idea what, what it was, what it meant. Um and the next thing I know, I went to my father's office and he pounded on his desk and said, there's young guys making fortunes doing that. What does it take? What does it take to get started? And I told him how I could get started. Uh, he just offered to bankroll me. And 60 days later, I was in the busiest, uh, largest trading pit in the world, the 30-year bond pit at the Chicago Board of Trade. As I said, 600 men and women uh, packed in like sardines, couldn't get a piece of notebook paper in between me and the guy that I was standing next to. Um, and it was controlled chaos. And it was just, um, yes, it was, how, it was, how, was very, the how was the body odor in the room? I'm just, I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't know. You not get that from, from watching, watching Wall Street. It was, it was horrible. But I'll tell you what, when you're making money. Was that strategic? And, I mean, would, would stinking up be strategic to try to get some people out of the room so you can close more deals? I would say drooling and spitting was more strategic than thinking. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, a lot of that existed. Yes, for sure. Yep. <laughs> it was un unfathomable to tell you the truth. But um, nope. it was the neatest place I ever participated in, though. That's for sure. That's uh, that's awesome. So instead of the Wolf of Wall Street, you were the Wolf of LaSalle Street, basically. I was. Yeah, I wasn't quite the Wolf, but I was. I I was a per participating trader. That's for sure. There were the guys that were. Uh, much bigger, took a lot more risk, but I found uh, a great little niche for 20 years and uh, figured out the game, um, you know, use d discipline. Uh, I've always been disciplined, uh, combative, <laughs> you know, of sorts. I've always been the little guy um, that's had, a, had to fight extra hard. Um, uh, and it fit right into my personality, actually. By, by the way, I got to say, it took me a second to realize that the 30-year bond trader meant you were trading 30-year bonds, not that you were there for 30 years. That's, <laughs> it threw me off when you just said 20 years. I'm like, wait, wasn't it? Then I was, then I got it right away. I, I apologize for my uh, enormous stupidity there. Please forgive me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no forgiving it. I just wanted to point out there were several different pits. It just happened to be that the 30-year bond pit was the largest, busiest, most active pit in the world for most of the time that I was there. What? Why is that? What? What? What made it so? Um, I think that it was there were the largest issuance of thirty-year bonds at the time. They were the longest to maturity, and they were the biggest opportunity for hedging. Um, you know, people always ask me how I got in there, what I knew about bonds, and my answer was 
I know that you get them for your bar mitzvah. Um, other than that, it was just, a, a, I wanted to be in the most active market in the world. And I uh, executed a style of trading called scalping. And that was just getting in and out, in and out of the market. It was, as it was kind of gyrating around throughout the day and the, the bond pit offered, uh, the greatest volatility and, um, the greatest amount of, uh, of contracts traded on a daily basis. So it was, it was just, you know, it was perfect for money making. Wow. So were you in on, uh, so moving back towards recent days, were you in on all that GameStop craziness? Like, were you like, I understand this, this fervor? I, I certainly understand it. I can tell you I have not made a trade since the year 2000, but coming from the trading community, I get, I see the, seen the evolution and the, you know, high speed trading and the human factor taken out, which breaks my heart because it's this generation of trader that really ended the game for, for my generate, for my generation, which had been there for 150 years mm. previous to me. Wow. Wow. Yep. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Um, so yeah. moving past that after 2000, you face some significant financial challenges, uh, transitioning to a, a family owned business. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Hey, what's, what's 5 million in red mean? Um, what was the company or, or like, what was, what was this business? What were some of the pivotal moments of this journey? And, uh, what, when you found out about, you know, that red, what did you feel at that moment? And what hindsight and lessons do you think you could share about this? Sure. Well, I always say I was one of the lucky people, right? There was about 10,000 people that when the lights got turned off on the trading floors that were kind of walking around in circles looking for the next thing to get involved in in life. And my father happened to own a finance company that he had grown for several decades. And I had been investing money in the finance company just because he was paying me a very handsome rate of return for uh, for you know several years, and I had actually um, talked a lot of my friends and colleagues into doing the same. And so we were investing in the company, getting an interest check every single month, and it was beautiful until I got there. And then upon arrival, something didn't make sense to me. Um, and my my simultaneous to that, my dad wound up coming down with cancer, which was almost a blessing. He got put in the hospital, which enabled my younger brother and our my uh, and myself to kind of dig into the skeletons of the business. And uh, our hunch was right; there was something wrong. And it was a I I like to call it an unintentional Ponzi scheme, but for all practical purposes, it it smelled like a Ponzi scheme. Um, and my money, my life savings, and my friend's money was at risk. Uh, to answer your question, how did I feel? I was sick to my stomach. I felt like I got blindsided. I came home one day and I looked at my wife and I said, what the heck just happened? Like, I just came off this amazing career where every year was better than the next. And all of a sudden I step into this and now I have two choices. I could either jump in and try to fix this thing or I could bankrupt it. And um, I think uh, just my personality of like, not giving up. And um, if I would have let it go, I would have never known if I'd be able to save it. And that kind of was haunting me also. So um, I was 40. I had a younger brother who was 22. Um, and we we jumped in. We uh, had two young fellas his age that were on their way off to Harvard Business School that we talked into helping us uh, reorganize this thing. 
And I had never fired anybody. And all of a sudden, I have to fire 24 of 25 of my dad's employees over the next 90 days and recalibrate and uh, pivot and and create a new business um, out of something that was really uh, on fire. So as, as you look back at that, and that was uh, PJ's last question. I think it's a good one. What, you know, in hindsight, what did you take? What, 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 what was that, you know, trial by fire? Um, what, what was the impact of that on you as a human being and, and as a businessman? Yeah, well, um, certainly as a human, as a human being, it was like, again, the, if I don't, am I going to regret it the rest of my life if I don't take the chance? Um, and I've been at that crossroads before that and crossroads since. So I see that pattern over and over and over. Uh, I'm up for challenges. Um, certainly I had no practical business background whatsoever. I came with a political science degree out of Arizona state and wound up in the 30 year bond pit at the Chicago board of trade. And now I'm in the world of high finance. So it forced me very quickly to learn, uh, under pressure. Um, I also had worked exclusively for myself as a trader. I was only responsible for myself. And now I find myself as the owner of a company with um, shortly thereafter 40 some odd employees and people and families and responsibilities and lines of credit and investors. So I grew very fast and very quick. And it, uh, what it, what it showed me was that if you put your nose to the grindstone, there's pretty much nothing you can't do. Um, I like to use the Anthony Robbins line, which is urgency creates a lot of success. And there was a heck of a lot of urgency there. So. No, so, um, yeah, you, 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 you face that challenge head on, you fix the business. And then, uh, not that long after that, the credit crisis, uh, hits, I don't know exactly how many years after that, but, uh, I think it was, um, certainly within a decade or so. Yeah, eight, uh, eight. And now you're facing a second major challenge and one that this time you were not able to survive. Talk to me about uh, that moment in time. What what was it about the credit crisis specifically, um, you know, without getting too technical, that knocked you guys down? Uh, and uh, tell me about the moment of realizing that despite your best efforts, having survived one harrowing near-death experience, you are about to succumb to the next. Uh, how did you feel? And, um, you know, how did you lift yourself back up? Yeah, I should back up for one second and just say we sure. we fixed we fixed this business. Yeah. Yeah. Reorganized it and relaunched it as a different type of lending entity. And we were the we were like the pioneers of this whole. You see the fix and flip lending shows all over TV right now. <clears throat> we wrote the playbook for that industry that hmm. thousands of companies are using right now. So we made our our senior lender went from being very unhappy and very very scared to being very very happy um yeah, we were uh, we were the darlings of this industry being looked at for acquisition in 2007 uh we had built this crazy machine uh went from lending $400,000 to local rehabbers in Chicago in 2002 to 100 million in 2005. So we really built an amazing machine. And then the credit crisis hit and our business model didn't break, but the real estate market collapsed. Yeah, we talked about 2006. In, so you'd revive the business. The business, you came into the business in 2000, as I understand. And, and you, yeah, when, when did you revive it? And 
And and yeah. by which point was it back to what was it ste- steady and doing well? So 2001, we were in the rebuild stage. By 2000, end of 2002, we had made back all the money and we're in the relaunch stage. 2005, we were humming. We were gotcha. um, growing, 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 super profitable. I was pinching myself going, I can't believe I did it again or I was part of a team that did it again. I did it by myself the first time because I was an independent trader. Now, all of a sudden, I'm part of a, I'm a, I'm a nice part of a functioning team, uh, serve my role as kind of like the senior person and, you know, the, the person of logic, I think. And, uh, so three, and then, four and years of 2008, real, 2008 hits you 2008 hit. And it was, it was, it was getting clear all of a sudden defaults were starting to mount up. Real estate prices were dropping, um, precipitously, um, guys, that were buying uh, vacant properties to rehab. We became a a rehab lender, a renovation lender. So if you can imagine, people were buying a property for $100,000, putting $50,000 in it and selling it for $250,000. You could now get that same property for $10,000 by the hundreds or by the thousands. And the handwriting was on the wall when uh, our customers were dropping the keys off at the door with tears in their eyes saying, I can't do it anymore. I'd rather give you back the property than have you foreclose on me. Uh, We were feeling the squeeze. We had 100 some odd private investors and we owed a bank $60 million at the time. And we fought uh, fought so hard. I think we paid our bank back 54 out of $60 million when most companies were paying back six and walking away from 54. Um, But... And by the way, my brother and I had no personal guarantees. Uh, we thought that as honorable businessmen, this is what you did. And uh, we also had investors that were behind the bank, and that we were, you know, we were trying feverishly to try to uh, to save their investment as well. But in the end, it just let's didn't work let's out. step away. Let's step away from the the technicalities and and the dollars and talk about feelings and emotions. What were you going through during this time? Oh, this was. Uh, yeah, this was outright. This was living hell. I mean, um, oh, I, I uh, because I had personal friends and family uh, invested. Um, I had no idea. You don't get to see the script, so I didn't know what the outcome was going to look like. Uh, if I was, um, I had a wife and three children, one starting college and two soon to follow, and it was crippling. It really was. It got it. It hit me very, very hard because I'm passionate about not only success, but about people that I bring into endeavors with me. And I, I felt like I was letting people down. And the truth was that it was a one in a you know thousand year flood and I couldn't hold the world up, but it, it took me down to my knees. Yeah. And I, I want to comment on that before PJ asked the next question. Um, you know, that may have, in fact, I think it was a, a, a rare flood. I don't know about one, one in a thousand years, we seem to have uh, you know, those one, one in a hundred year storms on an annual basis nowadays, at least weather wise. But, uh, yeah. but the fact is that sometimes you do get simply run over by circumstances that are beyond your control. And, uh, and even though, you know, you're not responsible, or at least you're not the reason that things have gone the way they've gone. Um, it's still incredibly painful. I was there. I am, uh, you know, uh, recently shut down a, a startup that I started a few years back. Mm-hmm. 
and felt uh, terrible about the investors that invested and it didn't work out. Obviously, startups don't always work out. For me, that was the first time that a, a startup of mine did not work out. Uh, and you know, I, I felt terrible about it, uh, even though a, a big factor in that was the fact that in May of last year, uh, it became incredibly hard for startups to borrow money. Uh, just the, the increase in interest rates really, really changed the game. So it was, again, a circumstance that was in many ways beyond my control and outside of our plans. But nevertheless, the feeling is very personal. So I can, I can relate, Steve. Yep. No, I, I, I'm sorry you went through it as well. Yeah. Well, and thank you for thank you for opening up your your past and your heart and your mindset about this. Um, it's it's kind of what draws people to our podcast in, in regards to digging deep and and feeling uh, seeing what other entrepreneurs go through. Um, even though we all have stories of hell to share, we also have stories of enlightenment and progress and and things of that nature. So. Um, thank you for, thank you for being honest in that. Um, and now I'm going to really dig in. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, also, you know, I'm assuming this, this kind of parlayed right into, right into this, where in 2015, you found yourself battling addiction to antidepressants, um, you know, which led to the creation of, of your, of your program, Hour of Champions. So could you talk more about Hour of, Hour of Champions? Could you also share about how, what led to this addiction? How, and like, how long were you in it before you realized, uh, I got to get out of this? Yeah. So in 2009, when the whole thing was, uh, was happening, the crisis was going on, I wound up uh, seeing a therapist and getting put on multiple medications. I had like serious bouts of insomnia, mm-hmm. um, which uh, coincided with the exact same time that Heath Ledger, the actor, took his life mm-hmm. to his battles with insomnia. Um, and I wound up getting medicated. I literally could not sleep. I was up five, six, seven days at a crack where your mind is your body is so tired, but your mind won't let it go to sleep. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I lived through it. And I finally got put on some, I, I coined them as like nuclear antidepressants where I would take them at night and I couldn't get up for 10 hours. Um, uh, four different four different meds. And I lived that way for from 2009 till 2015. And in 2015, I was walking... Uh, down the street in downtown Chicago. And I intersected with a young man who was a son, son uh, of a friend who's a doctor. Uh, I had known him since he was 12 years old. He was in his late thirties at this point. And we decided we were going to meet for breakfast the next week. And we did. And it was about six 15 in the morning. And he looked at me and he said, I got to ask you a question before, you know, we, anything else, what are you on? And I, I was like upset. I, I'm like, what do you mean? What am I at? It's 6.15 in the morning having breakfast with you. And he said, yeah, I've known you since I'm 12 years old and you have a glazed look in your eye and something's not right. And I said, well, I think you know a little bit about my story that I had this amazing business that I helped turn around and lost it in 2009. I got put on all these meds and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the meds. And he said, what are they? And I rattled them off like Ambien, Klonopin, Doxepin, and Lexapro. And he just looked at me and he, and he said, you're going to die. Wow. Yep. And here I am. It's 6.15 in the morning. I'm in downtown Chicago just agreeing to meet a young doctor for breakfast to get caught up on life. And the next thing I know, he tells me I'm going to die. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to get you off all these meds. 
whoever put you on these should be in jail. Um, and uh, I want to know right now, are you in or are you out? And I just kind of like kick back in my chair and I'm like, is this a bad movie? Like, I'm going to close my eyes and open them again. I'm going to hope it's a nightmare. So, and Steve, that, at that point, you had no inclination that you were an addict? No. How many, how, how, how many years were you? So how, this was what year? Six, six years. 2015. Yep. 2015. So for six years, you've been on this cocktail. Yep. You had no no one in your wife, your your family, no one else saw that you had, in fact, become addicted uh, to no, these painkillers no and antidepressants. Yep. Nope. I had no idea, number one, that you mm. could get addicted to a medicine that a doctor prescribes for you. Maybe that's my own naivety. Uh, on the outside, right. I look like- You and like, millions of others, my yeah, friend. Okay. So it's a, Me, me and millions personal. of others. Yep. No, I don't take it personally, actually. I'm really angry about it, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, on the outside, I look like a perfectly functioning human being. I was a business partner, a husband, a son, a brother, a father. I didn't miss my son's high school basketball games. I never missed going down to visit my daughter at school. I went out with my wife. I was in business meetings, flying around the country, going to conferences, growing uh, a startup on the outside. On the inside, I was collapsing like nobody had ever Nobody could ever know, and I hid it for for six years. So, so let's talk about that. So, so, I, so, I, I'm a little confused because on the one hand, you just said you hid it for six years, which suggests that you had a sense that, man, that's uh, I'm I'm depending on things that I shouldn't be dependent on, uh, and and on the other hand, it sounds like you and others maybe were taken aback by by this uh, incredible young man who, frankly, was brave enough and cared enough. Mm. Uh, to help you recognize that uh, you were going to kill yourself, help me help me square the circle, right? So, what did you recognize? Did did you, on some level, maybe subconsciously, realize, man, I if I took if I stopped taking these pills, I don't know if you ever had a situation where you forgot them and you were you were traveling and 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 the and the ramifications were such that you knew, oh my gosh, I really cannot live without them. I mean, what what was the experience for you? Um, I mean, if, if in fact you were completely oblivious to the fact that you were developing an addiction, I mean, that's, that's fine. Um, but if you were not, I, I, I'd love for you to share that a little bit with our audience. I think that that, that frankly, a lot of people um, take things and recognize far later, yeah. um, maybe far too late in some cases, hopefully not that uh, it's no longer a matter of this just makes me feel better. It becomes that I'm dependent on this to function. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Yep. Um, well, to me, an addict was a crack addict, a heroin addict, a cocaine I addict. Um, I, uh, I'd be not telling the truth if I didn't tell you that if I was going to an out-of-town conference, the first thing I packed were my pills. Because right. I didn't believe I could sleep at night without them. And having known and experienced like insane insomnia, I never wanted to go through that again. Uh, again, in my own naivety, did I think about being addicted? I really didn't. And that's just the truth. I just, I just knew that I never wanted to experience a night without taking the meds that I did take. Um, and when Ari, my friend, the doctor, said to me, you're addicted, it hit me. So, it hit me like like a bullet in my chest. Um, and he's. I said, "What do you mean? I'm addicted." And he said, "Have you ever tried getting off?" 
And I said, no. And he said, oh boy, buckle up. And was he right? Was it in fact uh, a harrowing journey? Well, um, he asked me if I was in or I was out. And he wanted to know immediately. And he's a very tough kid. He's a matter of fact, he's the son of of his Israeli father, a dear friend of mine. And uh, I said, I'm in. He said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. But here's your commitment to me. You go home, you give Jill, that's my wife, all the pills. He said, I need to immediately confer with my colleagues at University of Chicago to understand how to get you off of these. Because if I don't do it the right way, you're going to have a heart attack or a seizure. Now, here I am. I just agreed to come and have breakfast and A, I might die. B, I might have a heart attack. C, I might have a seizure. And D, it's going to be the worst year of my life. That was the wrap up that day. So I went home. I gave my wife all my meds. I gave him my wife's cell phone number. And the first night she gave me what appeared to be a piece of salt. You ever see a little piece of salt? When you're taking four pills and all of a sudden you get a piece of salt and I go, what's that? And she said, well, that's what he said you get tonight. Um, As far as the, as far as Klonopin, that was the first drug that we were going to get off. The other three, I was still taking the normal, the normal, uh, uh, however, yeah, normal dosage. Exactly right. But I see this tiny little piece of Klonopin. I laughed. I go, that's it. That's it. Went to bed that night. Didn't feel particularly well. I could feel like my body searching for that Klonopin already. Night number two, and by the way, he told me to sleep in my son's bedroom who had recently moved out because I wasn't going to be sleeping well for a while. Night number two, it was February 4th, 2015. Two o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I was shivering and um, something wasn't right. And I knew I needed more Klonopin. And I texted him. Uh, I'm shivering. I'm crying. I'm going through massive withdrawals already. I need more Klonopin. And I, you know how you could see the bubble in the phone when a text is coming through. It said F you. And it wasn't that kind. Mm. And I texted back. No, you don't understand. I'm melting down. I need more Klonopin. And the text came back. I know exactly what you mean. I told you I was going to be here with you every step of the way. Get out in the street and run 20 wind sprints right now. I called him up and he answered the phone. Again, it's 2.15 in the morning. And he said, yes. And I said, Ari, I'm melting down. He said, did you read my text? Get in the street and run 20 wind sprints right now. And I said, but it's four below zero. And he said, I know the date. I know the time. I've got a wife and two kids. I'm a doctor. I'm up with you. Get in the street. I went, I put on a pair of sweatpants. I put on a hoodie. I got out in the street and I can't tell you that I sprinted, but I fell forward (laughs) for 30 yards, turned around back and forth 20 times. I came back in. I texted him. I did it. He texted back. How do you feel? I thought about it. I said, I feel better. And he texted back. Great. Get in the shower. uh, Make yourself something to eat. Get your day started. I texted him back. It's 247 in the morning. (laughs) Texted me back. I know the date. I know the time. Get going. You committed to this. And that was the first night of 10 months of living hell. That was the night that I remember the most. I had tears pouring down my face. I got my day started. And um, uh, that was night number one of 10 months of living hell. Wow. Wow. And it's so 
I just find it I find it interesting because a lot of us think about addiction as something that's that's more conscious than unconscious. And what I mean by that is something that you do during the day, something that you're, you know, you're, you, you see a, you're in a scenario, oh, I need to fix, or I need something to deal with this scenario that I'm in. And um, for you, it was all sleep. It was all, you're taking these drugs and you're, you're out, right? Is it, is that? When I took them, I was out. That, that is for sure. You couldn't, you couldn't, an elephant couldn't get up probably from what I was taking. Yes. Yeah. I did not want to deal with the world. I, I've used this phrase in recovery meetings many times and with young men that I, you know, have worked with in the past and work with currently, I had no fear of dying. I had a fear of living. I had a total fear of living. I just wanted to take four pills at eight o'clock at night and just fall asleep. And if I didn't wake up, it wasn't going to be a big deal. And that's just the truth. That's how, that's the kind of pain that I was in. Well, I'm, I am very very happy that you're here talking to with us today. That Thank you survived you. all Thank this. Um, I uh, one of them that you listed was Ambien. I remember uh, right around that same time, 2015. I had trouble sleeping because I was going through a lot of things in my personal life. My doctor prescribed me Ambien, so I was taking Ambien. No, not not a lot, like five milligrams or something per night, and I took it for like a month straight. And then I went on a fishing trip, and the, and I forgot them. I was like, okay, you know, no, no big deal. And then even, and I'm not an addictive personality type of person. I've been able to cut cold turkey on many things. And um, that first night I slept like 45 minutes and I was shocked about how strong that was, even though I was taking very low dose and it was just something very innocuous, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah take this. And, and yeah. Um, so that among three others, of of very strong medications that you're mentioning, I can only imagine how hard that was. Yeah, well, you go through you you go through several sensations that you might have heard about or read about. They're called the brain saps, where when you're coming off uh, a benzodiazepine, which is klonopin, it's val it's like a supercharged Valium. Your your brain feels like it's plugged into a car battery. Like all of a sudden, it's just. Mm -hmm. Massive headaches that you never think are going to go away. I mean, waking up every single day feeling like somebody hit me over the head with a sledgehammer going, I guess I'm going to have to live like this. I, I, you know, I don't know. And, and I started seeking out like groups to go to people that had, you know, um, recovery groups and, and people just smile and say, it'll go away. We don't know when can't tell you, but it ends, you know, no promises, but it will end. Hang in there. A lot of hanging there's. Well, you, you know, I, I, while that may have not been terribly comforting, um, I, I I have a recent experience with with uh, heartache, and uh, and there were many months where it it didn't feel like uh, things would get better. I, I wasn't fortunately I wasn't addicted to anything, so my sensations weren't physical; they're emotional and mental. Addicted to love. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it was, it was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and yet I did know that, you know, that it would get better. Uh, I wonder whether when it's physical, uh, whether when it's, you know, you literally your body is, is, is experiencing the terrible shock of coming off of something that's been killing it while, you know, in some way sustaining it, hmm. uh, whether you could, you could even listen to people telling you that things will be okay and 
in any way, shape, or form believe it, or was it so incredible, not in the sense of something being wonderful, but in the sense of being so hard to believe uh, that you more or less just said, well, you know, whatever. I mean, at this point, I'm just, I've gotten this far. I'm just going to keep on trudging along and hope for the best. The hardest thing for me was watching my wife and kids watch me go through it. And um, I just decided that I had I had been this victim for so long, lived the victim life, and I'm going to get a chance to show my kids the hero in me. And I didn't care what it was going to take. There was nothing that was going to stop me. Ari asked me several times if I wanted to uh, go impatient uh, to get through this. It might be faster. Um, I said, no, not a chance. I'm doing this. And he said, not many people do it. Just I'm going to keep telling you that not many people do it you know, on their own or, you know, outside of checking themselves in, um, with some real help. And he, he offered it to me many times and I just, no, I just trudged through it. That was a good, good way to, to put it. Wow. So, and again, kudos to you for, Thank you. for all that, right? Like, especially when you bring in family and kids into that and, and, and what their perception is and what lessons you can, uh, impart on them. It's, it's huge. So uh, kudos, um, for sure. You, you mentioned in the, in the pre-interview notes that you, you really like to incorporate intense fitness. You, you kind of mentioned that the 30 yards falling forward. I get that. That's intense for me. Um, intense mindset, spiritual training on your daily routine in order to overcome your addiction. And, and that the, that transformative experience kind of inspired you to decide to help others, which again, kudos. Um, could you share like what that, what that program looks like for you? These, these, the, the fitness, the mindset, the spirituality, and how did you like, did you make these yourself? Did you find other resources that you called these from? And, um, you know, did you try some other things that were you like, eh, you know, that's a fad that's not working. Like, how did you, how did you get to this? Uh, Another thank you for asking me this question. Uh, Ari, my doctor, said to me, he 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 also is a coach and he's a very spiritual young man. And he said to me, you're going to have to find spirituality. And I didn't know what that meant. You know, I, I mean, uh, the con, you know, like conceptually, yes, but finding it like I remember calling him saying, I'm looking in my trunk. I'm looking at my closet shelf under my bed. I can't find freaking spirituality. And he would say to me, Google search it, find a book read, research, work your brain, your mind, your soul, and your body every single day. So I started putting it together. And I happened to, when, when I was functioning a little bit better, I started getting up at three o'clock in the morning, planning a workout, getting on my computer and searching for something on YouTube relative to mindset training and relative to spirituality. And I would just, because I'm older and technologically challenged, I would just copy and paste the links, put them into my phone. I would go to uh, my gym, which was open 24 seven. And I would just start working out and listening. I would like not sitting in the corner, just trying, trying to absorb, but kind of through osmosis, just listening to something, maybe David Goggins uh, or uh, something in the military about mindset. And then stumbled upon Marianne Williamson and Gabby Bernstein and Eckhart Tolle, just Google searching different combinations of words and things started sinking into my head. And I was hearing my story actually about trying to figure out life in this whole journey. 
And one night in particular, I, I was told to, I was told to go to a spiritual meeting. It was a recovery type meeting for addicts. And, uh, I couldn't find the address. It was, uh, it was right at the end of the winter and it was pitch black and snow was piling up on my shoulders, much like in the movie. It's a wonderful life. It was like a blizzard out. And I find this, um, this little narrow opening uh, with an address and I walk upstairs and there's like 50 people up there sitting around. They have this book in their, in their lap. And they were people from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, school teachers, homeless people, hedge fund managers, and in comes Steve, uh, who's got a chip on his shoulder. And I wound up sitting next to a gentleman on the couch. And they say to me that they go around the room, they read an excerpt from this book, and then they're going to comment on it. And I go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let's go. Let's get this thing moving, right? Um, I was ornery, you know, like skeptical about this whole spiritual thing. And it comes to me, and I read this little excerpt, and they ask me if I'll comment on it. And I said, well, before I do, like, you mind if I ask a question? And the guy that's running the meeting goes, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I said, how do I know all you people aren't full of crap? How do I know this isn't like the movie The Sting? Anybody here ever seen the sting Absolutely. where it all just breaks down and it's a big con, you know? And the guy goes, wow. I go, cause you over there, you got God, you got your higher power. You got the universe. How do I know this isn't all just BS? I was really upset, you know? And there was an older man on the couch next to me and he looked at me, he said, son, why don't you just give what we do a try? And if it doesn't work, we'll just refund your misery. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Holy crap. That was good. <laughs> and who knew to put that guy next to me? How did that guy wind up on a couch next to me when everybody else was sitting in a chair? And some, I'm some telling people, you, myself being included, would tell you that someone knew and that someone is probably why you're still here, in addition to the work you've done yourself. When I walked out the door that day, the light went on that someone knew. 100%. That's when it clicked in for me and my whole life changed. And I started seeing signs up until a half hour before this conversation today, everything, you know, when people ask me like, you know, Oh, when did you become so religious? I always say, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. And then they get, you know, a little confrontational. Well, what's the difference? And I go, well, I was told that religious people are trying to stay out of hell and spiritual people have already been there. So um, congratulations. Wow. If you just found out you were spiritual and I did, and I started putting it all together and like just repeating this every night. And um, I know I'm getting long winded here, but I get past it all. That that was a beautiful, this. beautiful uh, that's, statement. That's a T-shirt uh, quote yeah. right there. That's a T-shirt. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you don't know this, but PJ and I have a thing where, uh, you know, we are we are going to have the Braving Business T-shirt store. It will be yeah. open before season two begins. Yes, it will. Uh, and, and we've had many wonderful uh, quotes and statements by guests that just are so profound. That certainly seems like one of them. I've never Thank heard you. that before, which is uh, I love to share that. It, I, love when, I love when like people a, haven't heard it. It feels like, my goodness, boy, did that hit me uh, <laughs> in a good way. It's the truth, though, right? I mean, it is. It is the truth. It, it yeah. is the truth. And, you know, I, I was curious whether it's and I think you answered it with what you said, whether you were angry with God. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, maybe maybe you really were, uh, and maybe you didn't recognize it in so many words, but you know, when we struggle, well, it's, it's really hard to, to accept it as well. We're, you know, we're getting what we deserve or, or whatever 
it's been dished our way. It is what it is. And it's teaching us something. And we tend to be angry and assume that someone's being unfair. That's kind of the human condition. We start from a place of assuming that we deserve better, even if maybe we don't, uh, and that someone's being unfair to us. And oftentimes uh, we point the finger at God because it's easy. Uh, and, and it's a lot harder to do it. I believe you did, which is to accept responsibility and recognize that salvation, and I'm not trying to turn this into a religious hour, uh, but, but, but finding something to believe in is, is a huge source of strength at a time when you're not so strong. Very well stated. And I will tell you that, you know, when the, when the clouds, uh, when I got through the clouds, so to speak, one night I was leaving the gym at four o'clock in the morning, four fifteen, and a fellow was checking and he said, I got to stop you. Like you're leaving at four fifteen every morning. I'm getting here. Like, are you a fireman or a cop or something? And I said, no, I, with a smile on my face. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm saving my life. And he said, what do you mean? And I told, gave him the Cliff Notes version of what I was doing. And he said, wow, it's like you're training for a championship fight. And I got in my car. It was pitch black. I flipped over a business card and I wrote the Hour of Champions. And I said, I'm going to need this. When I get through this someday, I'm going to need this. And I'm going to share this experience with the world. And uh, I think it was late September, early October of that year. One day I woke up. And I was sitting at my kitchen counter having a cup of coffee and my wife walked down. And by the way, my wife was my rock during this whole experience. My wife had lost her mother when she was 21 years old. And she said to me, look, I know what tough is. We can get through anything every morning, kicking me, get your butt up. Let's go. Let's go. Do what Ari says. If he says to read, read. If he says to work out, work out. She would never let me miss anything. And my kids too pushed me very, very hard with a lot of love. But on that day, I woke up and I had tears coming down my face. And my wife looked at me and said, uh-oh, what's the matter? And I said, I feel good. I don't even remember what feeling good feels like. It's been so long. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Ari and tell him. And I called him and he said, look, uh, you know, coincidentally, I'm taking the day off today. My wife's working out. I'm with my kids. Come over. Have a cup of coffee with me. And I drove to his house. And he embraced me and he said, congratulations, you made it to the other side. And uh, I hope you know how heroic this has been. And I said, no, 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 you, you saved my life, man. And he said, no, no, you saved your life. I just drew out the battle plan. You executed the battle plan. And it wasn't perfect. There was a lot of bumps and bruises and swearing and yelling and skepticism along the way. But he said, you executed the plan and you got here. And um, he said, congratulations. I, I wasn't sure, I, you know, uh, and he let me know it was life and death, you know. Uh, and, and then I said to him, you know, you helped me, you helped me beat my depression. And he looked at me, he said, you didn't have depression. And I, I just, I'm like, oh my God, is this how this movie ends? Like, what do you mean I didn't have depression? And he said, Steve, you had fear. You had fear and you didn't have coping mechanisms and your doctor didn't know how to treat fear. So he treated it very much the way you would treat depression. And that's what that's what got you in this mess to begin with. And that's wow. when I coined the phrase that I shared with you guys on my uh, initial comments. You can't cure a soul problem with a pill. 
And I learned that the very hard way. I didn't have a problem up here. I had a problem in here. And I see that. That's uh, amazing. And I, I, wow, that's, that, that, that really hit me. Uh, You had fear. I I get that. Um, You know, again, I've also been in, in situations in my career where I, you know, I, in fact, I mean, you, you, you're, you're forcing me to rethink what I often tell as, as my story, which is that, you know, having had a significant setback in my career, um, I, I fell into a deep black hole and I felt deeply depressed, clinically depressed. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe I, you know, not all situations are the same. Obviously there Mm -hmm. is obviously a real thing called depression and people go through it. Um, I, I'll, I'll have to evaluate whether, whether what, what of that was fear versus depression. Like, I, I, cause like you, I was going through a situation where my business was failing and it was gut wrenching and I was letting people down and that was really difficult. And it did feel on some level like fear. Um, but let's not make it about me. Let's move back to you. I, I, <laughs> I, I think what helped, what helped him clarify it for me is that people that go through intense periods of fear have depressive thoughts. That doesn't mean that you have quote unquote depression, but you have depressive thoughts, which are a byproduct of the fear uh, uh, amongst many other things. I I get that. So, so you've told us how you came up with, with the name hour of champions. Why don't you tell us what it is? What, what did you turn it into? I I created a Facebook community. Uh, That was the first thing that I did. I, I called my college roommate, one, one of my college roommates and I, who I had lost contact with for several years and, I told him my story and I said, I'm about to f- start a Facebook community called the hour of champions. So I can share my story and kind of help guide people through what I went through. Um, and I said, do you think that's egomaniacal? And he said, no, I think it's awesome. And I said, will you be my first member? And he said, sure. <laughs> and I, I, uh, created a t-shirt that said hour of champions. I took a picture of it and put it in the, uh, uh, in the little, uh, slot for a a Facebook group because I didn't even know how to create a banner. And I just started sharing my story on doing YouTube segments and doing posts on my regular Facebook and asking people to join if they felt, you know, like, um, you know, if they heard my story and it resonated with them. And along the way, I created a a coaching business out of it where I work with people not, uh, not exclusively on Um, I don't work with people in addiction, but I work with people who have gotten themselves in this dilemma where their life has become part of their business instead of their business becoming part of their life. Mm. Uh, And they neglect themselves and they neglect. uh, So we work on the physical, mental and and spiritual component um, of their life, which I believe are imperative for attacking every single day. Uh, and then in 2012, I'd actually written a book, um, to give a shout out to my dad and my great uncles who my, who were my inspiration for my entrepreneurial DNA. And, uh, in the book, uh, I wove chapters in or principles that I believe were imperative for success in business. And I've kind of created this hour of champions, coaching and speaking platform around those. Uh, there's the the Titan principles, which I believe are imperative for success and entrepreneurship and the hour of champions uh, principles, which are imperative for battling uh, this everyday thing that we call life. That's awesome. That is awesome. Thank you. That's, it's, 
You're very inspirational there, Mr. Steve. Very inspirational. Well, thank you. I'm not a good I'm, I'm not good at marketing myself. That's my uh I'm really good at marketing and helping other people, but opportunities like this, I mean, I'm I'm consider myself so blessed to be able to share my story on this platform with uh men like you guys that really I could tell I could I could see it in your eyes. Um you know, the empathy or, and also feeling like, damn, I've been through some form of this myself. And maybe some of this guy's story will help me make better sense of my life. And that's what I do. I try to connect with more and more people to make better sense of my life along the way every single day. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and, uh, to, to take a small step back towards, um, towards your past a little bit in, in regards to the business side of things, since, you know, uh, we're, we're a business podcast with heart as, as we kind of mentioned before, um, this journey of selling, you know, of, of, you know, success and then failure and then success again, and then selling to a private equity firm. Woo um, a lot of our audience are entrepreneurs and who dream of doing that, like being able to create something that has, um, you know, has enough cachet to sell to a private equity firm. You mentioned that there is a unique connection between uh, the hour of champions challenge and the buyer. So can you, can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. So what I didn't share earlier was that when one world was collapsing, uh, another door was opening at the same time in 2009, some guys had come to me uh, who were starting had a startup and uh, it was in a very niche space of securing vacant and abandoned buildings with steel as opposed to plywood. Uh, and they were creating an equipment rental business. And there was one other player in this arena. Uh, they had, were out of the UK. They had come to Chicago in the mid nineties and they had a monopoly on, on a, a niche business. So some guys, uh, a cousin of mine through marriage and two other guys I had never met asked me if I would like to, uh, get involved with them. And from kind of a business perspective, I saw exactly where I would fit. We had the engineer, we had the, 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 uh, the, the money guy, we had the tech guy, but I was the guy that had the Rolodex and knew who the customers were of this other company. So I could visually see how I slid right in. And while I was unwinding one catastrophe, got involved in a startup, we grew it for 12 years, uh, started in Chicago, boarding up one building and 20,000 buildings later and 13 cities later, um, we thought it was time. We thought that what got you there won't, what got you here won't get you there. We had kind of taken it as far as we could take it. And we decided to sell it, uh, to put it on the market for sale. Two of my partners were very, very high profile guys, um, uh, in the U S in, uh, one in particular in real estate, ran a company for a billion dollar family. Um, and then another guy had sold the company to venture capital before, and they were going to get this taken care of. And two times during COVID it fell apart. It was right at the finish line and it fell apart. And simultaneous to that, I was run, I was running a, uh, a challenge in my hour of champions, uh, Facebook community. I had 25 people participating in a 10 day challenge, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, I was uh, giving them a um, mind, body, and spirit uh, assignment every single day. I created accountability partners for everybody and made it into a networking opportunity and a lifelong friendship opportunity. 
And one of the participants was a guy that founded on Facebook. He was a MBA from the University of Chicago. I actually made him an accountability partner with one of my sons who was participating. And six months after the challenge, he reached out to me and said, God, you know, I got to tell you, I think you're a really cool guy. I'd love to pick your brain if you'd let me. Can I take you out for lunch? And this is right at the height of COVID also, you know, remember walking into restaurants with masks on and all this stuff. And I said, sure. And we wound up meeting at a restaurant in Greektown in Chicago. And he was picking my brain. And I said, so, you know, remind me again, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm call, I'm what's called an entrepreneur in residence. I'm an MBA, work for a private equity group. We're looking for cool companies to buy. And I said, well, I have one for you. And in, in total honesty, I have been manifesting for 90 days. I have been getting up, hitting my knees every single morning and asking the universe to let me be the person that gets this company. So bring me the buyer. And I explained the business to him and he said, wow, that sounds really, really cool. Um, I'm going to go back and talk to our, um, our directors. And if they think, you know, it's interesting, let's take it from there. And he called me two days later. He said, they love the business. They want to talk to you and your, uh, your majority partners. And six months later, they wound up buying the company um, and taking it from there. So the, you know, little Steve Warner uh, manifested and got the company sold when two big swinging dicks couldn't do it and made me feel pretty good about myself. It makes for a good story on a podcast for, again, anything can happen. Just anything can happen. And especially when you buy into the uh, the spiritual side of things, um, you you really see them develop and happening in 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 real time. It's cool stuff. That's awesome. It's it's awesome, and I I think it's a great segue to my my last question. We're going to close with this. Sure. You gave us two quotes. One you've already actually uh, touched on, which is you can't cure a soul problem with a pill. I think I think that's a that's a good one. I think you've addressed why and how you came up with that thought. But the other one is as good as I let myself be. And uh, I love that. I don't know the origin story yet. I don't know what what prompted you to come up with that and, and why that resonates so much with you and how you've used it in your life. But I, even sight unseen, it resonates with me. I'd love to hear the story of, of what is as good as I let myself be? Where did, where did it come from? What does it mean to you? And how can our audience run with that? Yeah, sure. So it, it goes from that whole victim to hero thing. While I was going through that journey in 2015, it became like crystal clear to me that I had lived as a victim and victims love victims. You attract crap and uh, junk into your life. I'm trying not to be, you you can say shit. We're a podcast. Uh, Yeah. You, you, you already said two swinging dicks. I mean, at this point, nothing. Uh, That could have been been two dancing private investigators, just so you know. Yeah. (laughs) When when you're, uh, that's funny. When you're a victim, you, Allow shit into your life. Victims love victims. It's a it's a wonderful place to be. You don't expect much out of yourself. You're worthless. You're all this stuff. And kind of live that subliminally. And then when I started getting through this journey, I started saying to myself, I'm going to be the hero of this freaking thing. And I'm going to show my kids what a hero looks like. And I'm going to show the world what a hero looks like. And one day somebody said to me, how do you feel? How, do, how are you? And I said, I'm as good as I let myself be. And it just made sense to me. And I will tell you that I use it in every single uh, encounter that I have. It rolls off my tongue. Uh, I think Saturday I was at the gas station and I was giving somebody my credit card. And they said, how are you? And I said, I'm as good as I let myself be. And the woman behind the counter said, oh, my God, 
that is, uh, would you mind if I use that? I said, take it. Steve, <laughs> would you mind if we use it and put it on T-shirts? Yeah, have really. you copyrighted it? I please use it. It it just and when people say to me, I love that. I go, it just makes sense. It just and that's what spirituality is to me. When things just make sense, and it just made sense to me. And I have a lot of people in my recovery world that we we try to help. A, you know, when when you when you get through to the other side, the most beautiful thing about life is helping the next person. It really is. Sure. And that's when you know that you've made it and you get to that hero status. And it, it just makes sense to me. I'm as good as I allow myself to be. If I allow myself to be good, I'm good. If I allow myself to be shit, I'm shit. That is just a blatant truth. Another one that you mentioned that I absolutely love, and I've been thinking about it incessantly ever since you said it, is the um, that what got you here isn't going to get you there. Right. And I think I stole, I stole that. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. That's well, from, right. well, that's from Marshall Goldsmith it. in a book that I, I think yeah. the name of his book is what, what got you here. Won't get you there as a matter of fact, but it's, it also proves to be true. That's right. Well, all right, I'll just shut up now. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I just want to end by thanking you, Steve, for what's been phenomenal and incredibly interesting. And uh, I think deeply touching and hopefully very impactful interview. I think you let people in on on some very real, very personal uh, moments in your life and and you've come out triumphant. And I, I, I think that as good as I let myself be is, is a perfect punctuation uh, for this episode. Uh, and I would say to everyone that's listening, um, we all have moments in our lives where we feel like crap. And a lot of times when we are in those moments, we look for who to blame. Um, heck, they're political actors that have made a career out of that. We won't get into that. But I would say that ultimately, we are responsible for ourselves. We are responsible for our actions. We are responsible for whether we meet challenges head on or let them defeat us. And we've said again and again in this podcast that at the end of the day, what separates people that are successful and happy is the people that are successful and happy refuse to be defeated. They refuse to be defeated. It's as simple as that. They face the same challenges. They face the same headwinds. Yep. They face the same setbacks, but they refuse to be defeated. And Steve, my friend, you're a man that embodies that. And I feel honored to have heard your story today. I feel delighted that we're able to share it with our audience. Uh, if anyone in our audience would like to learn more uh, about what Steve is doing, uh, whether it's Hour of Champions or, or anything else, please reach out to us at www.bravingbusiness.com. Um, and uh, we will be glad to connect you with Steve. Steve, it's been such a privilege and such an honor. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to talk to us today. Yeah. Well, I, I'm equally honored. I have to tell you that this is the most fun podcast I've ever been on. You guys are amazing honestly this is that just at one of the most ex amazing experiences I've, I've had in being interviewed ever you guys are awesome at your art well very well, thank you very so much. kind of you make sure you tell your friends it's a it's a great reminder to our audience please if you like this episode uh subscribe you can like this episode and other episodes uh we are on all streaming platforms we're also of course on youtube uh we thank you so much we're so honored to be a top one half of one percent podcast popularity globally. 
We don't take that for granted whatsoever. Nope. It's because of guests like Steve and the story that they're willing to tell. And it's because of the fabulous t-shirts that PJ wears. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As, and real quick, Steve, I just wanted to say you, um, you want to show what the universe, you want to show the universe what a hero look like. And you want to show uh, your children and your family, what a hero look like. I hope that you also realize that you showed yourself what a hero looks like. And I, I laud you for that. I think that's awesome. You know, that is, that's very intuitive because I will tell you, I am my, I'm my biggest critic and it's very, very difficult uh, for all of us as, yeah. as you know, to, to satisfy ourselves, but thank you for Steve catch up on catch up on season one. We've had some really interesting conversations with people about, about being gentle with ourselves. It's something that entrepreneurs oftentimes struggle with. I've struggled with it much of my life. I've become much, much better at, it, and it's made my life so much better. I actually want to do one more last thing. I know that, you know, this is where we're, we're winding down for the fourth time, but I want to really commend you, commend you on how you recognize the role your wife and your children played. Very and true. in fact, we are often lifted in these moments um, by angels, and oftentimes they don't look like angels. They look like they look like our everyday spouse and our children. Uh, you're very, very fortunate. I'm sure you know that, and I'm sure you treat her that way and your children uh, to have had someone that didn't quit on you. Uh, you didn't quit on yourself, but man, it would have been a lot harder to not quit on yourself if others have quit on you. So you were very fortunate. Uh, and you know, I, I commend your wife as well. It's not easy Thank to be you. side by side with someone that's struggling. She did it. She loves you. Your children love you. And, um, and it's wonderful that you're on the other side. So true. Thank you. And that's a wrap folks. Like what you heard. Want to support the show? Please follow our page on LinkedIn and Facebook. Visit us on YouTube and please like, and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. You can also see exclusive content. Subscribe for free to our weekly blog, support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. Mm -hmm.